and welcome back to this edition of our Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am very excited to welcome this new guest to our show. She's never been on the show before. However, Dr. Marie Mahalitz is a dear friend of mine. She is a colleague. We did our doctorate together at Royal Roads University. And Dr. Marie Mahalitz is one of the nine participants that I was honored to interview as part of a series of interviews that I did for my doctorate in social sciences and interdisciplinary studies at Royal Roads University. My dissertation is looking at the barriers that exist amongst BIPOC communities. So that's communities of Indigenous peoples, people of color, and Black communities across North America, and the barriers that they face in accessing clean, real foods that allow them to nutrify their body so they can heal and um, manage and treat and reverse chronic degenerative diseases. Now, there are a lot of barriers in place amongst these remote and rural communities all across North America, but even in big cities, there is still a lack of access to nutrient-dense whole foods. And that is what my research covers. So that's a barrier, you know, like we've got something here that works and it's not fitting into the system that they have set up. That's a good example of what mm -hmm. their system is dictating for how mental health services are, are offered. And and it's not through a, a regional, um, we had our regional Kuwait and yeah, they was our regional uh, health care before, but it's all been dissolved now into a provincial one. So it's even tougher because now you talk to someone in Regina uh, who's saying, no, this is how it's done. So um, and this it doesn't was... stop us though. Like, what do you do? You know, when mm -hmm. it's some someone here that you, you know, all these kids. So, I, you know, we had a meeting with our MLA just about a month ago and I said, we don't say no. It's like mm -hmm. you help them. You know, it's it's it, it's pick up your pen or or pick up your shovels. That's what I tell these ministers. Because you yeah. either sign something that's going to help us or pick up a shovel and go dig another grave over there because we help people anyway and, and we've done things for free. Yeah, uh, us too. So, you know, because we know that it works and uh, and and people are waking up to that and and realizing that, you know, we need to work together. Because a lot of these uh, systems have divided us. Now, Dr. Marie Mahalitz is a respected researcher, consultant, and founder of White Lightning Consulting. Her organization is committed to community-based healing and wellness retreats, and she completed her PhD at Royal Roads University, like I mentioned. Um, we both were in the same cohort, uh, where her dissertation focused on Indigenous methods of healing and their potential for addressing the very high suicide rates and mental health issues in Northern Saskatchewan, Canada communities. Her research findings have been used to influence policy change with the aim of supporting sustainable, culturally relevant mental health services for Indigenous youth and families. Now, where Marie lives in northern Saskatchewan in the Bhopal region, there is very, very high suicide rates, especially amongst Indigenous youth. In fact, some of the highest rates seen in the country. And 
many of us, we can look at communities and we can come up with our own ideas, our own thesis as to what contributes to these mental health conditions, the high suicide rates, but we're missing a lot of the information because we need to look back in history and we make need to make the connections with what happened when b- between the times when suicide was non-existent. Marie will tell of a time when nobody heard about people committing suicide in Indigenous communities, and then when the first suicide happened. So we need to look at the time when people were not claiming their lives to now and what happened in between. And it's a very complex, integrated number of issues that we need to address. But one of the major, major contributors to this is colonization and all the intergenerational trauma that came as a result. Now, Dr. Mahalitz and her team at White Lightning Consulting offer evidence-based healing and education programs that combine Western science and Indigenous healing methods. Through their collaborative community-based approach, they aim to empower Indigenous youth and families to pick up their own knowledge bundles in today's world. And what that means is we all have a legacy of traditional knowledge, whether you're Irish, Scottish, Indigenous, Black, Asian, South Asian, South American, African. We all have a long legacy of how to live in cohesion, in collaboration, in community with the earth. And we knew about the world's medicines, the plant medicines. We knew about the soil medicine, the animal medicines. There are everything is medicine to us. And we use this for healing ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And it's time that we look to BIPOC folks and communities for the answers instead of thinking that we can come in as outsiders and put our answer, our our solutions onto these communities. We have to center the voices of BIPOC people all around the world. They're unique, individual, incredibly talented, smart, intelligent, kind, wise voices and their wisdom to be able to find the solutions that are needed to be able to truly heal from 500 years of colonization. Now with picking up the bundles and strengthening and mobilizing community processes, this happens from the inside out. And that's the work that Dr. Mahalitz is doing at White Lightning Consulting. And in the face of the challenges posed by the pandemic and the complex intergenerational trauma experienced by Indigenous communities, Dr. Mahalitz and her team continue to work towards enhancing sustainable counseling supports and delivering effective leadership training programs. So if you have never heard about her programs, I encourage you to please visit her website, learn as much as you can. It is incredibly beautiful, the work that they do, especially considering that it is embedded in a natural law calendar focusing on healing associated with the themes of the six seasons of our region, spring, summer, fall, freeze up, winter, and thaw. And lastly, I'd like to acknowledge that Dr. Mahalitz, she lives, works, and plays in Treaty 10 territory, where she is so excited to live her and have spent all of her life with her four other sisters. Um, Marie, also, you're going to learn about her incredible story going, being raised in Northern Saskatchewan in an Indigenous community, 
And um, the entire story behind that is incredible. So please listen to this podcast from beginning to end. And you know what to do, folks. If you're listening to this Eat Realty Heal podcast in this nine-part series, go ahead and share this episode with your loved ones and encourage them to share this episode with their loved ones. And then of course, go back and listen to all the episodes in this nine part series, because you are going to learn so much about really important topics that definitely affect you, or if not you, your loved ones and your community, and ultimately our nation. When we learn together, we can rise up together and we can start the healing process for all. Thanks for being here and let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Marie Mahalitz from Northern Saskatchewan. Hi, Marie. How are you today? Hi, really good. It's an honor to be here. It is an honor to have you here. So for everybody who's listening, you're going to get a kick out of this. Yesterday, Marie and I actually recorded this interview, and for the first time, I forgot to press record, but it was the best thing that ever happened because once that record button was actually, we were aware it was not on, it just, the whole interview <clears throat> went, like, it just shot into the stars. We just talked and talked and talked, and so much amazing just stories came forth and I wish I could share them all with you today, but we will not be able to do that. So we're going to have Marie back on the show for sure to do additional podcasts because she's just such a wealth of knowledge from all of her experiences and her curiosity in life and searching back through her ancestors and her lineage, which you're going to learn a little bit about here today. But for those who are wondering, if you're just hearing this podcast for the first time, this special series, it's a series of 12 podcasts that I'm doing with individuals from all over North America who have direct experience, direct knowledge, perhaps it's academic knowledge, academically acquired knowledge through universities, or it's knowledge acquired simply from living from the land from having experiences being born and raised as a human being on this planet. And these individuals are gathering to share their ideas, their thoughts, their skills, their experiences about what are the barriers to accessing clean, real foods, to accessing the quality of foods that we need to be able to maintain our mental health, our physical health, and to keep us free of chronic diseases. Now, of course, that's just the leading question, but because I'm using Indigenous research methods and because I'm using narrative inquiry as part of my PhD research, um, the conversations, they, they get to take a life of their own because within those conversations lay all the nuggets that are truly going to tell us what their true barriers are. Currently, our governments, they believe that the root cause of the four to eight times higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, mental health conditions, suicide rates that are happening amongst BIPOC peoples, our governments feel that it's because they are 
overweight. BIPOC peoples are overweight. They need to lose weight. They feel that it's because um, it's alcohol consumption and they feel that it has to do with their diet and their lack of exercise. But those are just superficial root causes. There is a much more systemic reason and reasons behind the disparity that we are seeing when it comes to BIPOC peoples suffering from these chronic diseases at such higher rates than non-Indigenous, non-Black, non-South Asian peoples. And that's what we're really trying to get it to the heart of here. So with that, Marie, yesterday, one of the pieces that you said was, nobody will ever know what it feels like to have my life. And I would love for you to tell me what you meant by that statement. You know, after we, we talked yesterday, um, I was thinking about that and I was thinking, I guess everybody could say the same thing I do. You know, when we, nobody, nobody uh, understands uh, an individual as much as the, the self does. So I, I guess it's in that self-discovery and, but I think just with the, uh, you know, when I, when I meet people and, and they say, oh my God, you grew up at a, a residential school it's like because I have blue eyes and blonde hair and you know white skin so um it is uh almost uh a, a, a feeling of being like you're on an island somewhere you know really and that's what that's where I grew up was was up on the mission hill there so when you think back to, uh, and you just thought that everybody grew up that way, like you just think the whole world is like me. But I think that uh, as you grow older and you start talking about your experiences, it's like, no, really, it's like we were pretty isolated and, you know, small population and growing up where we did. So, um, but like I, I've written and, and spoke to lots of people about uh, the situation of living in Northern Saskatchewan. And because the residential school where I grew up uh, had students and children being brought in from the region and as far down South as North Battleford, like uh, today, these people are chiefs and mayors and like they're the leadership now. So, um, you know, we've got relationships and that's really what, what, how my, how my work um, is so effective because those relationships are since childhood, like we, we've grown up together, even though it was not in the best circumstances, but uh, we've been bonded through, through uh, our childhood memories of, of the residents. So um, yeah, it's uh it's it's been a big part of my my healing journey and and looking back and then being able to relate to people who have uh, attended those schools and and like you say there's undercurrents to the illnesses that we see today um, not just physical but you know with experimentation with food and um, just the idea of taking people from from the land and putting them into industrial and residential schools. Uh, today we see that it's like dependency on grocery stores instead of going out hunting now. You know, it's it's just easier to do and 
But uh, when you see that in the, the fact is that was not even 100 years, you know, just barely 100 years ago, people were living off the land and, and a lot of people still do here. Like it's it's nice when you all celebrate the fact that, oh, Johnny got a moose last week and like, did you get your moose yet? That's what people do it in the fall time is when you meet each other at the store. It's like you're actually saying, did you get a moose yet? And it's like, oh man, it's so nice to see that because, you know, a chunk of meat now in the grocery store, like the prices have tripled. So, you know, it affects, uh, it's not just physical health, but, uh, you know, the students that I, I work with uh, that have left their communities and are doing post-secondary studies up here, you have to leave four hours, five hours away and move into the cities. And one of the things they really miss is their food like they're the dry meat now they're snapping pictures to me and saying oh my grandma dropped off dry meat and I'm so happy like it's like comfort but it's uh something we just need for for uh who we are is is what we eat so there's there's a link in in so many ways where uh you know that helps with our holistic health it's not just physical health so, and it brings us together, you know, with our ceremonies, you know, there's feasts and, and we usually have food that we, we bring together to, to share. So. So one of the questions, uh, or one of the things I just want to share with the audience, um, which we are going to do an entire show with you, Marie, just on your family lineage, because <clears throat> you are actually not indigenous to Canada, but you are indigenous to Ireland. Is that right? Yeah. Scott? My mother's Irish and French. Yeah. And my, my dad is more of a, we thought he was a Hungarian for most of our, till we, he did ancestry, but it was more of a, uh, Italian, Iberian, uh, Northern Croatian. So like kind of the, my grandma used to say gypsies, like a nomadic people. So yeah. So in my my journey through my my dissertation, it was a lot of self-discovery that way where I was looking into my own ancestry and some of the ceremonies that they they uh, practiced. And that wasn't even, you know, a hundred years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, but with uh, all of the the colonization came not just government regulations but the church was hand in hand with that so a lot of our ceremonies had to be underground um and and kept alive so i think that's that's one of the biggest challenges now is for young people who you know who are hearing and and discovering you know the discovery of these graves uh you know it's shocking where i grew up I when these graves first came up like every day when I was a kid we played out in the bush and the graveyards up there with you know small little kids in there and priests and nuns and whatever um but then it starts to make you wonder because you've heard stories growing up and it's like geez I wonder like were we playing around places on the mission there where there might be something like it really is an eerie feeling and you know what went on there already but that makes it even more real um but just the idea that you know a lot of people have uh taken off that robe of having to be catholic or having to be religious and 
with the younger people, it's um, not wanting to have any link to that now. But what do I what do I do to mm-hmm. learn something else that will help me spiritually? So there is a lot of spiritual confusion. And then when you see, uh, you know, some people drop the Catholic faith or the Anglican faith, and then they dive into evangelical faith or because it's not the ones who are blamed for doing all of this atrocity and genocidal, you know, just the whole colonization piece. But uh, we can see where there's a lot of confusion spiritually with our younger generation. So And you see that directly in the work that you're doing because, you know, yesterday it's, it's so hard because of this interview yesterday, there was so much that we covered. So I have all of this background information. So I want to make it so that our audience also has this information as well. So um, a little bit more about Marie and her family. So her parents were teachers and they decided they didn't want to work in the regular public school system and they wanted to go back up to it was it Larache and Bhopal Bhopal or Bhopal yeah Yeah. Bhopal in northern Saskatchewan and then that's where they went and said that they wanted to teach in the residential schools and really make a difference from a really good place Um, and they had their five girls Marie which is one of five uh, sisters and all the girls went to the residential school and um And you were saying with the work, especially with the work that you do with white lightning, you know, you're working with, with especially a lot of youth, but individuals who are, have a lot of mental health challenges. So what would we call in our Canadian government language, mental health challenges and where they are committing suicide, like Northern Saskatchewan has some of the highest rates of suicide in the, in all of Canada amongst indigenous youth and Indigenous men. And the work you do, um, going back to this spiritual confusion, is you found through your work that healing that spiritual confusion is such an important part of their healing journey and 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 being able to see the outcomes where they don't want to take their lives anymore. Yeah, and when we, we talk about, you know, the buzzwords going around now, but uh, it's it's like... It's really having to to uh, to unpack those ideas of what 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 does decolonizing trauma mean? What does uh, systemic barriers mean? You know, and how do we start even like where do we even start to to uh, do something about that? You know, with with the work that I do, we can easily get bogged down into the illness and the, you know, that's, that's more of the Western science model is you're always trying to diagnose the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, even titles of uh, like, who wants to go to a depression and uh, grief and trauma workshop when it could be focusing on what am I going to get out of this when I'm done? You know, let's mm-hmm. focus on the solutions and how do we get there? So um you know, in this conversation that we're having, uh, you know, it, it's important to get the message out there that there is there is help and there is meaningful help because time and time again in the work that I've done um, with the community team that we've developed here is we have clients coming in saying, I've tried this, I've gone to treatment, I've gone to a counselor, 
I've done all of these things, but after they come through a, a five day, uh, we call retreat, it's lodges, it, you know, there's different names for it, but it's, it's really that we have to go as, as tread softly because people are so vulnerable with all of the stuff that's going on, on top of layers and layers and layers of trauma that we've, mm -hmm. we've, uh, we've accumulated in our life, um, you know, in residential schools in this region is part of that. So uh, with my relationships uh, and understanding and my life experience, I've grown up with people who are great grandparents, even great grandparents today and working with their children and grandchildren. Um, it's like a light goes off when you really start to understand, well, now I'm starting to learn what happened in those schools. And that's that's uh, really powerful for children and grandchildren to start understanding and seeing. That's, that's why my parents or my grandparents treat me this way. And to just understand where that's coming from and why they're that way, uh, not to justify it or anything. But um, in the work that we do, um, you know, we really... Uh, see a lot of funding now coming with truth and reconciliation and uh, you know with some of our elders they're kind of worried about that because there's money being thrown around and uh, you know we want to make sure that that people understand that we don't just rip off a scab when we're in a session you know and then send people home because that's what we keep hearing is you know mm -hmm. It made me feel better when we did that, but I went home and it was like I just started my addiction again, or I just went right back into my dysfunctional behavior. Um, so, you know, we call it like when you start, like you start with safety and you go down and then you go in. But before you go home, you need to come up and then you go out. So you need some kind of pathing and goal setting. What am I going to do for the next month? And actually be able to achieve that goal because so many people have tried and they don't get there. And that that's, it's like, we call it like a revolving door, mm -hmm. you know, where you've tried things and it doesn't work. And then you try things and it doesn't work. So it's like, sometimes in like in an example is, is kids in high school, grade 10. It's, it's a tough, if you look across Canada, probably North America, it's uh a bottleneck of kids in grade 10 who just keep coming back, but they can't, it, it's a real challenge just to, to continue going on in school. But it's not just the fact that it's academic, it's carrying a lot of uh, things from home that are unresolved with mm -hmm. the grief and trauma that kids are experiencing. Um, you know, many of the adults I know probably couldn't hack, you know, what our young people are going through. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really challenging, but they need they need some all of us do um, a process like this that it's going to help. And you can do this in an hour. You could do it in a day. You could do it in a week, you know, but you just need to understand as as a helper or a therapist or a counselor or an uncle or an auntie, you know, it's like get them through that and then send them on their way. Um, it could be small goals, long-term goals, uh, but people just need to get a sense that they can achieve something mm -hmm. and feel good about that, even if it's just small, you know. Um, and, and 
when we're talking about uh, like I learned so much with the community team when I did my my research um, was to involve the the elders in our our region to kind of guide us along the way here with our work, but the understanding that with the Indigenous paradigm, what we see uh, even in schools, when I taught for 10 years in the high school, it was, we have a language program, it was called, but like I was teaching introductory Cree in grade 10, 11 and 12, but in grade 10, 11 and 12, it was it was one class and it was part, it was called a program. And I'd always say, this is not a program. If it was a program, they'd start in kindergarten and by grade 10, they'd be fluent already. Like even by grade four, like when you see French immersion and it would always be like, why am I teaching introductory Cree in grade 10 mm -hmm. and saying stand up, sit down, you know, like just basic commands. So when we think about mental health or like even with nutrition, it's like we need to get it so that it's it's like an immersion. We need to be flooded with it because uh, an hour a week isn't going to help. And, you know, that's what our mental health system right now in our community. We have a worker that comes in once a week um, for a community of over 1500 people. So it's not enough. and um, you know, people say there's gaps in the system. So uh, we know what those are, but we don't like to focus on that. We like to focus on, uh, you know, getting in and doing group works because a lot of the things that we do uh, in four days in a retreat with your peers and listening to each other and, and a lot of it is like, oh my God, it's like how how you introduced me it's like you feel like you're alone and you're the only one in the world going through this and then you sit there and you listen to other people sharing it's like oh my god I thought it was just I was just the only one that felt this way mm -hmm. and that's the power and they say the medicine in the circle is is you can go farther in four days if you if you went to if you bothered to keep trying to go to a counselor once a week for an hour here it would take about four years Exactly. And here, like in five days, you could get through four years of therapy the way that the model is right now. And mm -hmm. it's pretty powerful, but it's the follow up that that, you know, it has to be part of a bigger plan. And we have this in our communities. We have a lot of uh, local professionals who are in semi retirement mode and they don't want to stop working, but they want to be part of projects like this. So that's where we we are tapping into, uh, you know, providing some training and, and you know, um, the hope is to be continuing working with you, Nikki, and, and your, your nutrition. Um, and I remember when we first met there at Royal Roads, it was like, we're really talking about the same thing here. It's just a different uh, plate, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and. We see there there's a shift happening right now. Uh, the the system is crashing after COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. The attendance rates are are pretty much. You walk into high schools and you can hear crickets. You know, there's maybe wow. two kids in the school, and you know it's like there's a lot of uh, challenges in our school systems, but it's because of the way they were really designed is for co like colonizing people. Yeah, exactly. So, 
Um, and our medical models of health are, are kind of based on that same idea where um, it's really tied to pharmacy, to pharmaceuticals. Um, mm -hmm. Like if we have a, a crisis in communities here, um, there's not enough counselors to go around. So they're, the, the, the medications brought out, you know, anxiety meds to keep you calm until you can get in to see someone to talk to. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I watched Dope Sick on Disney mm -hmm. this winter and I thought finally somebody's exposing this because we've been talking about this for, for many of my young clients will come to me and say, I went to see a, a specialist and I'm, they gave me these pills, but on the pill bottle, it says side effects could be suicide or depression. Like, and I don't want to take them anymore. So what do I do? You know, so we, we don't even have people in the mental health field who are, you know, supposedly professionals who, who just don't know what to do with young people who are depressed and suicidal. So uh, and that's where with my team, I, I, I have the analogy of, uh, you know, it's like being trauma surgeons. You can't be scared of the blood and guts. You need to get in there Yeah. and it's hard, but you need to listen. You need to just stop and put duct tape over your mouth and quit preaching to these kids and just listen. And they said, they actually said that in our sessions, no one listens to us when mm -hmm. we speak. Uh, can you just listen and and you know really when when you're doing the the healing work uh you know we're we're not healing people people heal themselves but they just need a, a space to feel safe and and it comes through ceremony through meditation just stopping and shutting off that static from the chaos and the rest of the world we need mm -hmm. to ground ourselves in the natural elements, um, you know, and when we talk about uh, this, this is an indigenous uh, paradigm, it's really going back to the natural laws because that's where we all come from and uh, reconnecting. And that's where um, we find that uh, the understanding with the with the indigenous paradigm, when we talk about trauma and, and healing is, is we see it not as diagnosing an illness. Uh, like when you walk in and you do the DSM B5 with a psycho, you know, there, there's, there's certain cases where, you know, people do need to have medication to help them, you know, get to the, an introduction or maybe to, to just kind of calm things down or physically or chemically in their body, they need some kind of balance that way. But in most cases, I find that uh, the understanding is that when we have a mental health issue, there's a spirit that's, that's um, attached to our illness. And if we can psychologically say to ourselves, okay, my spirit is sick, what do I need to make it better? And there's extraction. I, I need to get it out of me. It's like when you have a cold, you know, there there's something I need to do to to get that virus out of me. And it's kind of the same idea with our spirit, our spirits. And that's where we need uh, the extraction 
comes through ceremony. There's specific ceremonies for a lot of the illnesses that we have. And there's fewer and fewer and fewer, like the lady you met with uh, bringing the wood and saying, you know, they're, they're, we're losing them. There are libraries, you know, all of that knowledge. Um, you know, if I'm feeling this way, what do, what ceremony would I go to? And it could be a five-minute ceremony, you know, uh, setting up a feast plate or building an altar. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole day of a, you know, a sweat lodge ceremony where I have to spend a whole three, four hours going to something. So, you know, I guess it's kind of like rituals, but it's psychological as well to know that it's actually, I'm taking it out of my space and it's, it's moving away from me. And, and you know, when I hear you say this, I can imagine, because I understand the context that you're speaking in and, but for other people who are listening, especially for other people who have been indoctrinated into Christianity and Catholicism, and now they've understood that maybe that wasn't um, you know, that wasn't the, the one, the be all one, all religion for everybody. And so then when they hear you say this, you know, like, um, that the spirit is sick, you know, that the spirit is hurt, that we need to extract and heal that. And when, and, you know, in doing it through ceremony and doing it through the natural laws and reconnecting in my mind, for somebody who's hearing this for the first time, I imagine that they think, it's behaving in a religious way, right? Like you're talking about like, there's an evil spirit, like the sin is in you. And that's been taught to us. And I think almost so much that, you know, if you were to write a grant proposal, which you're often doing to government bodies to say, hey, we need to implement these, um, you know, we need to use an indigenous paradigm. We need to, um, you know, engage with ceremony, plant uh, land-based learning, all of these things that, to them, they think of it as voodoo when all you are talking about is reconnecting with your soul. You're reconnecting with your inner self. You are remembering the hurt, the trauma. You are working through that. And I, I mean, isn't that ultimately like, it doesn't matter what the religion, what, you know, your, your cultural background is in every culture around the world. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do through therapy, but then therapy doesn't get us there at all because it makes us think that we're broken. Right. Whereas yeah. what you're talking about, it's, and I don't want to say it's easy it's not easy to do this work. Like you said, you have to look at the blood in the guts, like a trauma surgeon when you're doing this, and that can be really hard. But at the same time, it is the direct path. Like you said, like what you can do in five days takes the traditional, not the traditional, actually the conventional Western model months and months to achieve. And it's the same thing with myself and nutrition, what we can do with food to reverse disease in like seven to 30 days, we can reverse diabetes. Like in the conventional medical system, they say it's not reversible. Diabetes is not reversible, but it is. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out because I know that a lot of people are probably hearing this and not you know, and, and anyway, it brings me back to what that one individual said to you that, 
you know, sitting in teepees and banging drums is, is not going to get us there, but it actually <clears throat> is going to get us there. Yeah. And, and, and like you say, with, you know, if we're, we're decolonizing religion, if that's, if that's even possible, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, with my background, like it took me a long time. Like I was born, raised Catholic on a residential school, like living on the mission Hill for 18 years. Um, so, you know, you, you have to be very gentle and very patient and not to say I have the right way and you need to learn what I believe, you know, it's like, oh my God, you're still stuck in the Catholic faith. You know, we can't judge other people, you know, uh, we can be spiritual and we can be religious, you know, and we can be religious and not an ounce of spirituality. When we just follow the route ritual, we have to do this, we have to do this. But, you know, like even uh, as a kid, I always questioned things and I'd say, well, why do I have to go in that little box and I can't see the priest and I have to tell him all my sins? Like, so we just make stuff up. I stole a candy. I, I said a bad word or like you just make up things or but I found that, you know, and, and for some people, you know, it helps them. So that's my story. That's how I feel. Or, mm -hmm. you know, doing the rosary, you know, it's just, it's, it's repeating uh, over and over again, but it's not really meaningful. That's how I would always feel is how come I have to keep saying the same thing over and over mm -hmm. and over again, where when I started to go into ceremony, when I was 19, I was introduced to the sweat lodge and I received my name and and the people that I was sitting with in the circle were, you know, so, uh, you know, you're sitting on the ground, you know, I've always been that earthy connected person as right from a child. Um, you know, we grew up in the boreal forest here, right by the clear lakes. And like, we've grown up here our whole life and it's just part of me, you know? Mm. Um, and I knew that that had to be part of what I was feeling, but I didn't understand until, you know, really the last 10 years when you, you, you stop your life and you start thinking about how does this all fit together yeah. so that I can help other people understand what I've gone through. Um, but being a teacher and uh, getting frustrated in the, in the school system where you, you get to know these kids and it's not just knowing them. It's like, they're your best friends that you grew up with. These are their, your, you know, you're, they're like your mm -hmm. own, you know, yeah. so if they're going through something, you can't just sit there behind your desk as a teacher and say, okay, absent, they're not here, they're not here, but you know what's going on and there's, and you're told you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I went into my master's with counseling. I thought, you know, I'll be a counselor now because the kids trust me already. The parents yeah. trust me. I can walk into their house and say, you know, like, like, can we sit down and talk about what's going on here? Um, but even so, you know, the system was was uh, dictated that, no, I can't do counseling in the high school. Now I can just do career counseling. So, again, it's like busying you up and you're tabulating all these courses. And and I couldn't get into what I wanted to do until I did the consultant work. So and that's where I got into, uh, you know, really the indigenous paradigm of healing. I had to step out of the systems. And in my experience as a professional now, that's why I have White Lightning Consulting today is because it can't be as, as effective and efficient if it's trying to be inserted into a program. Like I'll get calls mm -hmm. from communities saying, 
can you come for an hour and do a workshop? We're having a conference and it's like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that because that would be ripping off a scab and leaving people. Yeah. And and I can't do that ethically. You know, I, I cannot do that anymore. Uh, or can you come to the school and do a retreat? And it's like, no, sorry, we can't come into the school when the bells are going to ring and announcements are happening and you're trying to be, you know, you're in a sacred space. Yeah. So these spaces have to be outside of our, our current system. Same thing with the mental health. I don't have an office in a building. Mm-hmm. Um, my office is, uh, you know, by the lake. It could be driving around and going out for coffee. But most of the time, it's like we have a fire pit and that's where we go sit and we drink our tea And we just talk about what's going on and people feel comfortable that way. So it's really, I guess what I'm getting to is the context of an indigenous paradigm. We need to think outside the box. Um, And with our work that we've done the most effectively is, uh, and it's challenging, you know, now that I've got my PhD, it's really challenging to find work uh, where where we can do it the way that it needs to be done outside mm-hmm. of the system. So we need to convince people in health, like with Jordan's principle out on the First Nation reserves, there's a lot of funding with Jordan's principle. But we're also talking about education, like targeting young people is, is you know, with the suicide epidemic that's gone on, we're not focusing on suicide, we're foc- focusing on youth healing lodges and ceremonies that that we can start teaching um so really it's we need to have an in the intersectoral uh justice health education all of those different uh organizations have their own silos we hear that all the time Mm -hmm. like uh but really like when we got a contract we we spoke with uh leadership in a first nation band in 2019 and we came up with a service agreement that fit what we wanted to get done because it's like beyond what what's being done right now. Um, but you need to have leadership that's flexible and trusts that that you know what you're doing. So uh, that's that's kind of the power of, of having this behind the, you know, in a published book now with with the dissertation. So it's really communities have the solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just need a little bit of training and understanding and bringing elders bringing ceremonies we're not going to walk into a, a another community and tell them how to do things you know they have their right. own cultures and and ceremonies that they already have and people there to do that it's just how do we bring those people forward and uh not to be afraid like that's what we've learned is to hide all of this well, that's, a re- you know, this is, I think, a really big part that you're bringing up here is which, you know, every program that you've ever seen in Canada, you know, it's usually the government recognizes like, oh my gosh, we have a crisis on our hands. We have an epidemic on our hands. We have high rates of suicide amongst teen in Northern Saskatchewan or Saskatchewan, or we have, um, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, high, the diabetes rates are increasing. So then government says, okay, we've pulled together money to create a program that we're going to roll out across Canada, right? Like this is how 
almost every single program. Our education system is like this. You can think about like the colonization of the entire country was really, you know, it was government leading that um, with the help of few individuals who persuaded government to, you know, get behind this. Um, and so we have, this has been going on since the beginning of time, yet our health issues are getting worse. Our mental health issues are getting worse. Um, you know, like, you know, our water is getting worse. Um, we still have indigenous communities all across Canada that don't have access to clean drinking water. They have like boil advisory rates, 365 days a year. So the part that you're talking about here is that the solutions already exist within the communities, right? It's already there. So what you're saying is the very opposite. We don't need those government programs that we roll out across, you know, the whole entire nation. And of course we don't, because every community is unique. Every community, you know, one barrier for, especially when it comes to accessing clean, real food, it's going to be different across every, sometimes it's going to be geographical. Sometimes it's going to be just lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's going to be, um, it costs $90 for, you know, a bag of cherries. Um, so knowing that we need these individualized programs in these individual communities, but like how, how, how are we going to do this? Cause you've tried to get the funding to be able to do this and you haven't always received it in more cases than not, I think have not received it to be able to do this work. So so I guess what I'm trying to say here is one of the biggest barriers is just the way that our entire government system is designed and that access to funding to be able to make that happen. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, it just needs to be called out, you know, and I did my research uh, and, and, you know, you, you know it already, but sometimes like when we do our research, we have to back it up with facts and, you know, Canadian counseling teacher, the teachers association across Canada, and this is just not Canada. It's everywhere. It's global where the mental health of students, they've seen decline and they understand that it's not just in our northern communities anymore. The suicide rates, depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, youth on the streets. You know, when I went to Victoria, they're always shocked. I've, I've been to Young Street in Toronto, but when I went into Victoria with you and we went down, I was singing, holy macaroni, like in mm -hmm. young people and old people and middle-aged people, you know, it's not just young people anymore. Yeah. Um, but when you look into what's what government programs are there that have been created to uh, to address mental health issues in the school, because that's that's where my area is, it's uh, courses like mental health first aid assist training, you know, and I and I took gamuts of that. That was my job as a consultant in the school division. But really, it was training professionals who work with young people like grade one teachers, social workers, whoever, uh, who are on the front lines, but teaching them to uh, diagnose or recognize, okay, that kid right there, that's there's something going on there. I'm gonna refer that kid to a mental health therapist. So now it's like we have these eyes and ears in the schools, you know, which is a good thing to be able to recognize that something's going on. But the answer is to refer them to a psychologist who's going to medicate their ADHD. Look at the numbers of ADHD yeah. in this country. And it's just crazy. 
you know, uh, and they say, well, they have PTSD. It's an intergenerational trauma because they're, you know, well, okay, well, we recognize that we need to, to say, okay, we're, we're trauma informed. You, you hear that all the time now, trauma informed care or trauma informed education. It's not just the fact that I understand that their grandparents went to residential school and maybe some of the dysfunctional patterns that they learned is passed on. It's more than that. It's, we can't medicate people out of a mental health issue Mm -mm. because you know what I, what I tend to stop people when they say PTSD, I say, you know what, it's not a diagnosis. It's not Mm -hmm. a disorder. No. It's a response. So PTSR, I, I try and get people to say, instead of you saying PTSD, it's not a disorder. It's a response of trauma that's been passed down. We've learned patterns of dysfunction. Um, you know, if you work with addictions, you hear about uh, uh, the work that you do with uh, the family constellation. If you're the oldest, you're pretty much raising your brothers and sisters and usually you go into nursing or like it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, but it could be the same thing when we have parents who, who have learned uh, you know, these dysfunctional patterns with it, it's no fault, you know, mm-hmm. of, of them, but it's just a response. And mm-hmm. I need, uh, I need choices now. So when we think of the medical models of health, um, we need to break those down. And people are really understanding that we've heard it for 10 years. Now there's gaps in the system. It's like, okay, well, we know that. So what are we going to do about it? You know, um, and that's what we're excited about with the research that we did. We we um, identified these barriers, um, but we didn't just stop there. We talked about what are some of the building blocks that as communities we can work on from the grassroots. We can't keep waiting. Like you said, we've been writing uh, proposals and we don't even like to, to, to dwell on that. But it's mm-hmm. like we can't wait for the government to to help stuff like this when there's a different agenda going on with the governments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and the, the building blocks that we talk about is understanding these historical links to trauma. What does that mean? When my parents went to the mission here, I have it first right here. You know, I, I understand I can see, and I didn't attend, I didn't stay in the residential school but I lived on the hill there and, and grew up with the, the people. And I see the PTS, you know, the, the response mm-hmm. still to this day. It's like, you can't sit, you can't sit still. You have to keep your hands moving, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the things that we work with is art therapy. And we find that that's, uh, you know, the breath work, um, hands on, uh, hands-on ceremonies really is what it is, is you're doing something and you're an active participant in your own healing because Mm -hmm. you, you need to be empowered and to say, you know what, I can do this in my backyard. I don't have to make an appointment with a professional. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, and people are, are starving for this, you know, and understanding that, you know, sure the trauma has been passed down through, through my, my blood, through my my family but you know what so is the healing mm-hmm. and you and I have both experienced that where you know we understand that it's not just the bad stuff because you know sometimes that's how we think about mental health is it's bad you know it's yeah. bad stuff 
but you know it, it's healing you know men healing is a big part of mental health and it's yeah. not just mental I don't even like that word anymore you know because it it's it's uh dissecting the whole person it's not we can't just talk about mental and not include all of the other dimensions of a person because we're whole people yeah. and you know coming back to the religious and the spiritual uh intrusions it's like you know, when I first started uh, learning about, you know, soul pain uh, was coined uh, by Duran. People look up his his research. He coined that term soul pain. Um, and he's indigenous from from in the States. And uh, Purifei actually, he ran the women's lodges at the Sundance ceremony when I talked to her and showed her this article. I said, this guy's really got some awesome work. And she said, oh, you mean uh, uh, Eddie? Like it said, Eduardo. And, and she, she knew him personally. So, you know, you get all yeah. these connections. But soul pain is really what the Indigenous, uh, you know, paradigm talks about in, in the ceremonies. But it's like the idea that you're born pure you're you're a pure spirit because mm -hmm. you've come you know a woman has that power to to bring a life from another dimension into this this reality like that's the power of women in medicine that we have yeah. but it's it's the fact that when we're born newborn babies are pure but I was raised in the Catholic faith where you're born evil and you get straight to that mm -hmm. church and you baptize them because if you don't, you're going straight to hell. Yeah. So it's like totally different worldviews about who I am to the core, you know, and when you start talking about this in our retreats, we, we do this stuff where it's like, this is why I think this way. This is why I believe in some of these values that I have that might, you know, not align with uh, where I need to be at. And that's that's a barrier for me. It's my own belief system is a barrier to, to my mental health or physical health. Um, so understanding that along the way in my life, I, I go through these, you know, um, losses, which really are the root of my grief and my traumas I've lost something mm -hmm. um and all through my life you know um I if I was taken to a residential school I lost how much did I lose you know I can't speak for someone else but it's like language culture family everything you've lost and it's been replaced with with uh something else you know a friend of mine called me up uh a couple months ago and, and said, you know what, I've been thinking about my brothers and sisters and she's my age, like in her mid fifties. And she's, she was thinking about her family or brothers and sisters today. And she said, you know, I never really thought of it, but all my brothers and sisters, we all have uh work where we've been so uh, industrialized, mm. like, we we have we have to get up at seven eat at 7 30 like it's fall like the residence was that way you got a time you went to mass you did this yeah. you did this but it it's it stays with you for the rest of your life because you you need to work hard and you know it, it's good values for for some you know some circumstances but a lot of that is um 
is causing anxiety to in in this day and age with with grandparents you know saying uh and a lot of ocd you know you have to do it this way where yeah. you know you it, it's just been internalized so much and and one of the probably the the biggest challenges is we don't have the residential schools physically they're not there the yeah. the clergy is gone the system you can't see it but it's there it's ingrained in all of the grandparents all of the people that went to those schools it's invisible but you see it coming out in the younger generation so you know people say oh there's a high suicide rate in our area or but it's like well it's not you know let's not focus on the suicide let's focus on what the bigger like this take up look back up and 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 have a wider perspective and understand the context mm -hmm. of where it's complicated but it's simple really yeah. we need space to be able to just sit down and and feel like we can talk about uh how we're feeling about this and and to understand this healings in our dna it's part of us and there's hope there it's just that we need uh, the time and the space to to uh, sit with our peers Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes our peers are elders and youth because they're looking back at their life and wishing, you know, they could have done something because they understand, we understand what's happened, but to be able to help someone else now on their journey. So sometimes mm -hmm. the, the dynamics of, of working with groups is you can see this working and it always does. There's uh there's a power in that where, uh, we've come to understand that there's a there's protocols around ceremony that are important and that's what they're for it's bound setting boundaries mm -hmm. and and we need that so we can't just have any person coming in saying oh well just teach me how to build a sweat and i'll run one like yeah, you know exactly. you, you know you can do things like um you need to spend a lot of time to understand the bigger picture and where it fits uh, so really, when we talk about uh, our work, it's like we're prescribing ceremonies mm -hmm. uh, when people come out uh, and there is some hesitation still, you know, in communities where the, you know, the Catholic faith or religious doc indoctrination, it's it's in it's embedded so deep. But uh, a lot of times I just say, you know, take that you don't have a title when you come into the room you're not a nurse or you're not a counselor mm -hmm. or a, like you're a, you're a human being and we're here together and we're here to, to talk about uh, what's going on with our life and, and just learning to understand that uh, we've kind of all gone through the traumas and, and it's the same prescription really is we need to just stop, uh, slow down, breathe, and working with that natural law so that it's it's going back to our origins it's not a certain race trauma doesn't no uh, doesn't pick a certain race we've seen it everywhere it's like you said uh you know i i i was fortunate to go to ireland in 2019 with my mom and when i went there um, I remember walking around, you know, when you walk in the streets and the malls and stuff, and I was looking at these young kids and, you know, when you see pictures of your grandparents, like the black and white pictures and you say, 
holy man, grandpa was only 20 in that picture. And he looks like he was like 50, like they <laughs> yeah. look old. And I was looking around and, you know, there was some people that, you know, look like regular Canadian kids, but I was looking at other ones and I was thinking they're hanging out together. So they must be the same age. And that, that kid looks like he could be 45, 50, 70. Like they look old, some of those young kids. And I thought, it's not just over here that we're experiencing intergenerational trauma because we were going on tours and listening to the god-awful hell that my ancestors went through in Ireland through being starved to death. Yeah. Um, and, you know, pretty much almost wiped out. So it's like, man, there's... And, and my cousins that I met there, my mom's cousins were saying, we really like you to come here and, and do some retreats with us. So of it's course. like, you start realizing, you know, that's not just here. You know, I have to... You know, I'm sometimes thinking in my own bubble and I'm here on a, a trip to Ireland, but it's like then understanding, man, my mom never talked about her, her grandma. Yeah. Never talked about I thought that she came from Ireland she said no she was in Renfrew Ontario that's where they they came up and they settled there but it was never spoken about what happened to them it was like you didn't talk about it so yeah. now it's starting you know it's same thing with um you know it's it's so traumatizing who would want to talk about it you know we need to focus on what we're going to do to get done here you know it was part of the survival mode you know yeah but I, I think you know, with with everything that's happening with um, the residential school, uh, the discovery of the the graves, um, it's kind of waking up the world to understand. You know what's really gone on through colonization. It's not just in North America. It's it's you know Ireland was a big part of that too, with Britain coming in there and trying to take it over. So exactly. Well, yeah. that's that's one of the you know. There's so much in just what you said here that um i want to come back to as well and then as well to to sit with this piece that we all have an origin story it's why i chose narrative inquiry because it's you know if we were to use narrative medicine the way it's being now taught in some schools some doctors are learning about narrative medicine because they realize it's so important to hear the stories of the patients, to really be able to then prescribe the right treatment. But then when we usually, when we hear the stories, it's often not a pill that gets prescribed. It's often, hey, you're in a bad relationship or you're seeking love, you feel alone, or it's, you know, you want to be creative and you're not able to be creative in your work. So maybe you need to find a creative outlet or, you know, like there there's the treatment is never medicine when we use narrative medicine, when we hear people's origin stories. But there's something that you said earlier that I really want to come back to. <clears throat> and that is, you said, even though the residential schools are gone, even though the clergy is gone, but the system is still alive in us. And it's this rhythm that's been created by the residential school systems, but it's not a rhythm. It's an agenda. It's like a, a systemized schedule that we are now all abiding to. And we've actually lost the rhythm, but this is where, when you sit in ceremony, often drums and, and drumming is an important part of ceremonial work. And it's not for the music, but it's actually for connecting to the rhythm of our own 
self, our heartbeat, um, our ancestors, our greater spiritual connection, the rhythm of nature. And so I just really, I found that was really powerful in what you said there, just about the residential school system being gone, but it still lives in with all of us. The second part that I want to come back to as well is the fact that you said trauma doesn't matter what your origin is, doesn't matter what your race, religion, culture, where you were born, whether you're white, whether you're indigenous or black, we all have an origin story and there's trauma that we've all experienced. And it made me think as well that for a lot of individuals who are working in government that have these systems in place, that have access to millions of dollars that they get to dish out to individuals like you and myself who are trying to do this good work. So we have to write these proposals and then they have to sit in their office and judge whether um, you know, your proposal deserves the money well, you know, achieve the results. But if they can't relate to what you're talking about, if they can't relate to what I'm talking about, like food is medicine or ceremony is medicine. There's this part too, that I realized that for a lot of these individuals that are in these positions of power to administer that money, they themselves are going to go through a, a, a crisis, a trauma of their own, when they realize they need ceremony, they need food as medicine. And all the years that they denied people access to that as well. So it's like, so I wonder how much, you know, they're cutting themselves off from being human, right? They're just so systemized as well, because they're part of the system. And how all of this is just, we're just a bunch of broken people running around, trying to do good work, but none of us can do it because we literally have all been so colonized by, by the system, like it's broken everywhere. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, you touched on a lot of things there, but I guess the the thing we've come to understand is how much we've internalized. Like it's, it's a part of everything we do every day. Like if I get mm -hmm. up at eight and I go to my office and I work nine to five, like really, do I have to go into an office and work nine to five? I'm fighting that right now as a counselor. It's like, you're offered mental health therapist jobs and it's like well so what does that look like it's like well you come to the office at eight and you leave at five and you make appointments from one an hour whatever whatever and I said mm -hmm. I'm sorry I've done that and I'm not I the delivery of of mental health needs to change it mm -hmm. needs to be flexible um you know, and, and outdoors, you know, you see these beautiful mental health facilities getting built and they look like hospitals. And I there's know. a, you know, a, you sure you need doctors and nurses when you're talking with detox. But, you know, I have good friends of mine who have been in, uh, you know, integration, you know, you talk about uh, it, it's a it's a daily challenge sometimes like especially if you've gone through addictions and you're you're uh, in recovery really I tell people you know what I'm a re I'm a recovering Catholic and really it, they, they laugh and but I say you know what it's true like I I understand more and more now the natural law process and and what's going on and what's happening uh the more you get into in tune with this type of work um, it's really what we're talking about is energy. You know, it comes down to our energy as people. It's like 
as a high school teacher, you'd see you'd get a substitute teacher coming and they'd walk in the room and the kids would like go all berserk and you'd say, what the hell? Like, what's going on? But it's like they can feel the mm. energy that you emit. And it's the same way when we're talking about uh, uh, working with mental health, uh, working with groups. We really, really, you know, that's another book that needs to be written on my self-care. Like when we do our retreats, like we sit up till sometimes three in the morning as facilitators because we're we're triggered yeah. by a lot of the stories that are coming out and saying we need to deal with this because we can't keep working with, you know, people. And I keep coming back to the, you know, I can only help heal other people as far as I've healed myself. Yeah. It's like, I can't go and teach a calculus class to a, a group of students if I don't know what calculus is and how mm -hmm. it works. So it's the same thing as other, you know, in mental health, sometimes, uh, you know, more and more you see the, it's not just the counselors, it's, it's government, it's the ministers in charge of mental health or, uh, yeah who have no idea what to do, but throw money at it. And it's all going into pharmaceuticals. So mm -hmm. um, that whole system is built for a purpose, which is, you know, for governments is we need to make some kind of money off of it. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have to kind of just keep working at the grassroots and saying we we have to get this done it's really saving saving people's lives um but making it uh making it available in a way that's not threatening like even the fact that i'd have to to step out of the high school or if i'm a, a young person uh what's gonna make me feel comfortable getting a hold of people and you know what covid's kind of done a good thing for that mm -hmm. because i get texts and young people say i'm so happy that i can do this counseling online or over the phone because right. everybody's got a phone now um and you start that way but eventually i i try and get people to say you know we could set up a group here where we could spend some time together with our peers because that's the part that's kind of crumbling with this, you know, our social, you know, walk into an appoint, uh, an appointment at a chiropractor or wherever in the city or wherever you're going and everybody's sitting looking at their phones. Nobody's talking to each other, even at mm -hmm. restaurants, you know, it's like uh, socially uh, um, that's, that's so powerful in our healing is we need to, we're social beings we need to interact with each other in positive ways um and you know that's where when we talk about uh setting our boundaries for for our our healing journeys are so important and what does that even look like relationships you know mm -hmm. um in all of our relationships how do we set it up so that i know that it's going to help me to move forward um and in a lot of our families where we're finding the, the depression and the suicidal tendencies, it's, it's there, people don't feel safe and there's nowhere for them to go in their communities. So yet they have lots of uh, government agencies there, you mm -hmm. know? So in some of the big, larger communities here, when I got my job as a consultant, I went up and I said, well, I didn't know that there was counselors that came into this community and they'd get up in the morning at eight, drive to the community and they'd be in the back of the hospital in their offices, mm -hmm. but nobody was really going in to see them. So uh, 
but the group work that we've done and we've done it out at a resort here uh, for the last 15 years where people uh, with the feedback we get is like, a, it was so nice to not have to do the dishes or cook mm -hmm. a meal for my kids or I could just sit out and look at the lake and go for a walk down to the water and and to just be in the quiet. I needed that. And and there's there's internet service that's pretty patchy. So the phone, you know, uh, the distraction is not there with with uh, social media. So um, well, we there's that. there's that, and within that, you know, just that ability to have space, you know, and like you said, it doesn't take long. Like I just think about some yoga classes that I went to and where I sat on the mat and the teacher at the beginning just says, okay, I want you to take three deep breaths in. And all of a sudden I'm crying on the mat and I don't even understand why, but it's literally, I stopped. There's no technology. It's just me with myself on a mat. I'm breathing and it touches something inside of me. And then there's an awareness there. Um, you also said in our interview that we didn't record yesterday, you said <laughs> one of the important pieces that needs to happen is people need to say and ask themselves, do I want to get better? I can't do it alone. I need help. And then you said, that's where your healing begins. And I thought that was so powerful because I wonder if one of the barriers to healing taking place, whether it's through food as medicine, through ceremony as medicine, you know, in our relationships, is it just because also we don't get asked anymore? We're just getting told you have a drug addiction, you have an alcohol addiction, you are suicidal, you are overweight, you are this, you are that, you have diabetes. But, you know, nobody's really asking, do you want to get better? Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, everything's always so, you know, the, the fear around the stigma of mental health, uh, when you say, oh, this, this, young person here is suicidal and it's like everybody drops like a hot potato on the floor you know and I've I've used that it's like a hot potato that's been passed around from health to justice to education like nobody wants to hold it because it's burning a hole through them and there's mm. there's it's it's a fear the fear factor you know yeah. um and you can't just say okay we're gonna have a mental health workshop we're going to have, uh, and then I've seen, oh my goodness, like courses in high school where it's suicide, depression, anxiety. It's like, oh, sign me up. It's mm -hmm. like, oh my God, who wants to sign up for something like that? But on the other side of the coin is you need to address that when you're advertising. Like when we advertise for uh, events that we have, you need to name that. You need to name it and we teach that when I can name it. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember in my 20s, I knew happy, sad, mad, maybe three or four names for my wh what I was feeling because I didn't know frustrated or, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have that link to what was going the context of what I was going through. Yeah. But we need to name that so that we can own it. And when we have uh, Sarah, when we have our, our retreats the it's a whole can of worms when we talk about recruitment for these retreats because when we first started it would be 
well, Johnny here has uh, 95 average, so he can afford to miss some days of school and it's, uh, or the principal's son or, you know, the best athletes in the high school or, or, you know, the professionals that know everything about mental health issues will come to this. And it's like, and, and, you know, a few times we've had some youth come in there and say, I, I didn't even want to be here. My mom said I had to come. Mm. So it's like, you know what? You need to know what you're stepping into here and you need to want to have to do something about it. And when you have that, uh, they, the, the young people, I'm telling you, don't have filters. It's like they'll know why they're there and they'll state their intention on the first day. It's like, I need to forgive. I need yeah. to forgive my 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 best friend or my brother for killing themselves and leaving leaving me here. Yeah. They know but when you have adults and professionals, we've put on so many layers of cumulative grief and trauma because that's our survival. We've just yeah. covered it, covered it. And sometimes we don't even know why we're there. So we just say, well, I'm here to learn more about how to help others with their grief and trauma. And that's fine. But by the second day, it's like now I'm starting to realize that there's something underneath here. I've buried it for so long. Um I don't even know what it is anymore, but I need time to figure that out. So, mm. you know, and in that process, it's a, it's a lot of letting go needs to happen where we actually, I remember doing it where you, you make a circle, you write it down on a paper of all the things that have happened in your life. And when you get it written on that paper, you know, that what I was talking about extracting things, it's like now it's mm -hmm. on the paper and I can actually see how full it is but I've taken it out of my head and I've put it on the paper yeah. and now I can do something about that. And, and that's where the ceremonial stuff comes in. So, you know, making space, uh, it's like storing information, you know, it can only get so far where you have to let it out. And so you can have more time to let other things in. Mm, so, um, that. Yeah. Well, you make me think about another barrier and, and I'll ask your opinion on this because you know, like, for example, that exercise of writing things on a piece of paper and putting it in a circle or <clears throat> a lot of these tools are are being taught in, you know, in coaching programs where, you know, people are being hired as coaches, but you see the rates of these coaches, you know, and I know that, you know, we have to put food on our table, so we have to charge for it. And if we're not getting funding from um, you know, grants and, and government bodies. Well, yeah, we have to pay to be the coaches and the counselors, but is price a barrier that's preventing people from healing? Absolutely. Um, one of the, ch the biggest challenges I'm facing right now as a counselor, um, I'm, I'm covered through, uh, I'm registered with Indigenous Services Canada with my uh, counseling services so it's like uh, your health care is covered if you're treaty. So it's like going in and getting a prescription, it's covered. And it's the same thing with mental health. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, it's capped off at 22 hours. So it's like, I would say, okay, so you can come to me and, and we can spend 22 hours. And then what happens? And they said, well, you can apply for extension. I said, why is there even a cap on that? But in our communities, we have, La Plonge Reserve, which is part of English River First Nation, where I grew up. And then across the river is a Métis community where you have non-status and Métis residents. 
And if I put up an ad for counseling services for white lightning, which I haven't done specifically to say, uh, you know, I have openings because Métis and, and non-status don't have funding. I've mm -hmm. called Saskatchewan Health about that and said, look, it's not fair. And I don't even want to go there because it divides right away who my clients, you know, for mm -hmm. me to say First Nations are, are are only covered when our communities are a mixture of, it's like going to Toronto and saying only Italians can come and take my services yeah. and be paid for. And everybody else is going, what the, like, what about me? So I addressed that with Saskatchewan Health, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm still, I'm working with the, you know, MLA here trying to figure that out. And he said, well, just call Métis Society and talk to the president about this. And I said, this is not just the Métis Society. This is a provincial, you know, mm -hmm. um, they said, well, it's not a public service that you're offering. You're offering a private through your white lightning. So that would have to be a separate service agreement. But again, you can only have maybe 10 to 15 clients. So that's a barrier, you know, like we've got something here that works and it's not fitting into the system that they have set up. That's a good example of what mm -hmm. their system is dictating for how mental health services are, are offered. And, and it's not through a, a regional, um, we had our regional Kuwait and yeah, they was our regional uh, health care before, but it's all been dissolved now into a provincial one. So it's even tougher because now you talk to someone in Regina uh, who's saying, no, this is how it's done. So um, and this it was... stop us though. Like, what do you do, you know, when mm -hmm. it's some someone here that you, you know, all these kids. So, I, you know, we had a meeting with our MLA just about a month ago and I said, we don't say no. It's like mm -hmm. you help them, you know, it's, it's, it's pick up your pen or, or pick up your shovels. That's what I tell these ministers because you yeah. either sign something that's going to help us or pick up a shovel and go dig another grave over there because we help people anyway. And, and mm -hmm. we've done things for free. Yeah, uh, too. So, you know, because we know that it works and, uh, and, and people are waking up to that and, and realizing that, you know, we need to work together as a lot of these uh, systems have divided us. That, um, yeah, brings me back to why it was so important for me to do, you know, in interviewing guests for our podcast was to interview people who are not on the policy side, who are not on the academic side are, you know, but are academic just through their living here as a human being on the earth, which brings us back to, you know, it, it really what you're saying is traditional ways of knowing are not being recognized by our Canadian government. You are using the Indigenous paradigm, Indigenous healing methods. You are using ceremony, breath work, drumming, talking, circles, gathering in community, which scientifically all of these things are proven to heal, are proven to work. But our governments are not listening to the science that's already produced. They're not listening and recognizing traditional ways of knowing um, as being a valid um, as being a valid 
you know, call it counseling method. You know, those are the words that they would use or a counseling practice. And so, you know, it's, again, it's systemic racism, it's systemic oppression. It's, it's like, it's that continuation of this, you know, colonized world that we are all part of, and we're never going to get to the true healing unless, um, these indigenous ways of knowing are recognized as valid, as true, as working. And this is probably one of the biggest, biggest, biggest barriers. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've, I've used uh, the analogy of, you know, with thinking about all the systemic things, like sometimes when we, we start, uh, it's like Google earth always said, you know, you can back your perspective up so much that, that, uh, you know, it's good to, to have that, uh, different uh, objective view because sometimes we're so stuck in the middle of all of this we mm -hmm. we uh, get lost and it you start drowning in your own stuff so it's important to be able to step back and get out of that and uh, you know once in a while uh, my husband and I just get in the boat and by the time we cross halfway across the lake our headaches are gone it's like we just mm -hmm. needed to get out and get some air in our face and look at the stars and the sky and and reconnect that way but um, you know, it comes down to, I, I like to say our traumas that we experience in our life are like, it's like getting a sliver mm. and it's like, you know what, you can pretend that it's not there, uh, which I've done. Tried to myself and, doesn't you know, work. And then you get another sliver and then you get another sliver and what, and what happens and, and people can understand what, what happens to a sliver when you don't gets infected you know, the, deep, the deeper that it gets in there the more infected it gets and it yeah. freaking hurts when you yeah. poke in there but and it's pussy and swollen yeah. and but you need to get it out because for the rest of your life it'll stay in there and it'll it'll manifest into something else yeah that's why systemic we're yeah like and it makes our whole our whole being becomes sick because of this one little sliver, but it's not just one little sliver. It's like yeah. lots of them throughout yeah. our life. And, and that's where we need time. If you can't see it and it's on the, on your back, you need someone else to come there and help you get it yeah. out. So trauma is the same. Whereas we need other people to help us. We need medicines to, mm -hmm. to clean it out, you know, um, and we need the tools for, for how we get there. So in, in communities, it's the same thing. It, it's, it's organizations, it's families, yeah. it's communities where we've got these slivers of colonization that are stuck into us, but it's like, how do we take them out without hurting each other more? Um, so, you know, that's why the title of my research was picking up our medicine bundles, but in a modern day context, mm -hmm. and then it's mobilizing communities. Uh, how can we help each other laterally, lateral growth? Uh, because really here, it's like you're you're living with uh, communities that are cousins to each other, like you're related by blood. And uh, so when, when you're related that way, if one person you know, does something and heals themselves, it's like a ripple effect. It affects everybody else. So, mm -hmm. you know, it just starts with me, really, because yeah. it can be pretty overwhelming um, if we try and change, change that big system out there without starting with myself. So we, mm -hmm. we 
We always remind ourselves as that as a team because it can get really frustrating when we we've been applying for funding and stuff like that. It can get uh, you know a lot of us now on the team are are getting full time jobs elsewhere, but we still do our work on our mm-hmm. own time, and that's how we've been doing this for the last you know at least ten years because it's needed. So it's just a matter of. Uh, stepping out of those full-time jobs and going into this so that it's paid work Um, yeah so we're at that point and where other communities as well have professionals just like us there's you know our teams are everywhere um it's just something that's waiting uh for for the right uh vessel or you know framework for them to be able to say okay now now we know how to put this together and and you know not not telling other communities this is how you do it but just kind of like a guide for how can we get started and the steps towards doing that so it's just that you know with your nutrition same thing you know how are our stores set up here and people say well diabetes rates are off the the charts here and I I went to geez this was probably 15 years ago we had health professionals come from down south to put on a weekend workshop where they had uh little Ziploc bags of sugar and then pop sizes of pop and saying this is how much sugar is in this and that and this and that and then a KFC bucket and a chicken wing and this much lard you know Mm -hmm. fat so this is actually what you're eating so we're saying oh that's pretty cool and and then they had FAS babies you know this is how Mm -hmm. they shake and look or so it's like all these displays set up and then this young girl got up at the front and she she started saying, can anybody give us any examples of why you think diabetes is such a disease in the north? And so I I put my <laughs> hand up and I said, when you came to Beauval, did you drive up and check the northern store and go and check how much uh, a bag of apples are? a jug of milk, uh, a piece of meat, and now go check how much uh, pop and chips are. Like people can't afford healthy food because, you know, uh, and it comes down to that where, you know, maybe, you know, a hundred years ago, they didn't have to worry about that because their grandpa shot a moose and they had berries and, you know, their diet has been changed so fast, um, you know, from junk food, a junk food diet from you know lean healthy nutritious foods so um you know it's like it's not rocket science it's like Mm -hmm. we need to have the food here available to us and and we can grow it ourselves you know it doesn't have to be a business so um, do you find that um just you know my whole entire dissertation is about access to the foods, the healthy, nutritious, lean foods that you talk about, because we know that eating those in abundance does reverse diabetes. And we know that eating, you know, processed refined foods and refined carbohydrates contributes to, um, and, and high amounts of like, you know, processed animal fats contributes to diabetes. So, you know, that that's 68,000 studies have been published since 2018 alone showing that relationship. So we know food is a huge, huge, huge factor, but do you also think it's knowledge? And the reason I ask that is because, and and this is not just in knowledge in indigenous communities, but it's knowledge across 
Canada, across North America, because we have all this marketing that's telling us that, oh, you know, this gluten-free organic vegan cereal, but it's in a box, it's packaged, it's processed. There's nothing whole, there's nothing fresh, there's nothing nutritious about it, but people have come to believe that. And with the work that I've done with, you know, the Squamish Nation and Mount Curry, you know, they're like the members, they stood up and they're like, we don't eat potatoes because potatoes are bad for you. We were told to not eat potatoes, but it was, you know, dietitians and nutritionists that were telling them not to eat potatoes. But, you know, like it just, I don't know the lack. And I, I hate saying lack of knowledge because we know that indigenous peoples were free of diabetes prior to the 1940s all over the world. They ate nutritious food. So the knowledge is there within them, but, and I, I, and I hate using the word knowledge because it feels very patriarchal and very um, almost condescending to use that because the knowledge is within indigenous peoples. It was truly the settlers that came with the white food, the white sugar, the refined processed white flowers, the white salt, which really just like decimated um, indigenous people's diets. But to keep Yeah, I think it's, I, I, I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. Um, and I think it's like worldview or, you know, when I, when you said, uh, you know, with the knowledge around food, it's, uh, I don't know why I just flashed to a good friend of mine came to visit and he was in a big rush and, uh, his dad ran, uh, like ceremonies. And when, when you went to the ceremonies, like, especially with him being his son and his mom was a medicine woman. And so you had to gather medicines. If you went to their lodge, you had a responsibility and, and, and it was to go out and pick certain specific medicines. And he'd say, geez, the eagles hatched in the, in the nest two weeks ago already. And I'm, I, I better get my ass out there or my mom's going to be really pissed off because I need to get out there and pick this medicine because there's a time when the eggs hatch. And then when they're, you know, the chicks are coming out, that's how you watch, like everything is mm -hmm. interrelated. And there was a time that you had to pick medicines when they're at their most potent, mm -hmm. um, uh, but you watched, you watched the animals and they taught you when, when these certain uh, plants were ready and they were used in ceremonies for specific purposes. Like uh, I, I, his mother was my, I went to her for my medicines um, and uh, she'd have her little shack in the back and, and things like prescriptions, really, that was like a pharmacy, mm -hmm. you know, she'd have, and I've, I've got a lot of that, uh, you know, we've got into, uh, my husband went through uh, an experience where he was told he had to get his stomach cut out because of his ulcers. And he said, no, I don't want to live like that. And it was uh, elders up in Northwest Territories. He just happened to visit and they said, mm -hmm. you need to uh, drink this. And he drank it for three months and he was cured. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the cures are there, same thing with cancer, but you know, it's like you say, like people don't want to hear that there's a cure for it because yeah. who's going to lose out, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, we don't spend time uh, fighting that kind of stuff. You just do it. You know, yeah. you just say, look, we have this, uh, you don't have to pay a million dollars to get this medicine. It's like, just, you know, give us some tobacco and, uh, and, and spread the word that, that you can get this done. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the, uh, 
issues stemming from uh, resource extraction up here, especially now we're seeing logging trucks. You know, we've been getting clear cutting going on in our area here, and it's really disturbing because we know the kids are learning more and more about mm -hmm. picking and harvesting medicines. Mm -hmm. and it's like they're not going to be around here if, if they're coming clear cutting, and it's not just clear cutting, it's spraying after that. And then now mm -hmm. are they going to take the peat moss and what's going to happen? So the that's a real... Um, source of ecological grief you know there's mm -hmm. there's chapters and chapters written on that uh you know i had an elder come to a retreat who said it physically makes me sick when i see a logging truck pass our community because i know what they're doing and i can't pick my medicine mm -hmm. i've gone out to my trap line and it's there's nothing left mm -hmm. so um you know, and that's where we're bracing ourselves here in our areas to to say, you know, we need to start standing up more and, you know, uh, legislation around that. Can we stand up and guard our land here without getting put in jail? Is that yeah. against the law now? So because we're a threat, because uh, we have everything, we have everything we need, just like with mental health, we have all mm -hmm. the food and the fish and the moose and the, but how long is that going to last before it's the same thing as, you know, cutting it down. And I learned that at Royal Roads, there was like, it's it's actually a strategy, globalization to have these mega cities where you have to buy everything. Yeah. And uh, we have no control over that. So, uh, uh, you know, thankfully, we're still in the position here where, you know, we, we still have food that's clean and water and fish. And I used to visit one of my elders and he'd, he'd always have... Uh, slow cooker on the cupboard in the kitchen and it would be rabbits it would be moose meat caribou and uh he'd put a few carrots from the garden and potatoes in there and he'd always be eating that he'd never eat uh food from the store and i asked him that one time i said man because he was a trapper and a fisherman and a hunter and he said uh that's all I eat, he said, is 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 the animals from here because it's clean. He said, why would why would I want to eat something off an animal that walks around in its own shit all day? Mm -hmm. You know, like these cattle and pigs and chicken. He said, they walk around in their own shit all day. They're all dirty and stinky. And he mm -hmm. said, why would I want to eat that when I can take a fish out of the lake here? That's You can drink the water here still. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's simple, but we make it complicated sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, it's come to the point now where we need to be standing up and and, and uh, defending this clean because really it's it's our food. Mm -hmm. Oh, Marie, I think we have have we have we done it? I'm looking back through I've 10, 11 pages of notes from our two combined interviews um, and literally there is just so much beautiful healing within this podcast that for anybody who's listening to this, you can go out and do any one of the, you know, few hundred things that you mentioned and, and start your healing journey for anybody who's listening out there. Um, what is this, some tips? What is one tip, a couple tips that you want to leave with our audience? So for people who are, you know, perhaps have a family member who is, and I don't even want to say 
battling mental health, but actually just struggling with spiritual loss, struggling with that soul pain. What are some tips that you have from individuals who are struggling with it themselves or who have family members that are? Um, I think that like, I, I can only speak from my own experience. Um, like I lost uh, my youngest sister, she had a lung disease and, and I thought I was okay. You know, she passed away and, and I thought, okay, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. And, and, you know, it didn't hit me until the, the anniversary of her death, the year after mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, I got up off the bed and I was just freaking out and saying, I have to go to the graveyard. Like all of a sudden it's like, it, I just had this anxiety attack in the middle of the night dark winter night and I was saying I was getting dressed to go out and people were saying what the hell's wrong with you so you know sometimes we're in survival mode for so long and we think we're okay but it manifests itself like outbursts of anger Mm -hmm. uh, frustration with our kids you know we have a, a, a tolerance where when we see signs of that I say, what's coming out of my mouth is like a temperature gauge. If I start getting really negative, then I know that maybe there's something that I need to address personally. And it has to start with me and I need to recognize those signs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's mental health, but it's spiritual. It's everything to do with me. And every day I might need to just say, you know what, I just need to stop, uh, put on my coat and just go for a walk around the block. Or, uh, you know, if I need something, um, if something's happened to me and I think I've resolved it, but it keeps coming up and I keep talking about it over and over, that's a sign of unresolved grief and trauma where mm-hmm. you'd say, well, I've talked about it with a counselor like 20 times, but I still feel the same way. That's a sign that we need to go deeper and get that sliver out because we're just sticking a bandaid on it and it's still in there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our, our mental health services is talk therapy, which can help, but it does not heal. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, we say ceremony, but find a person who can sit with you and and be able to go to that place and knows what to do with that trauma and that's why people who run sweat lodges you know give them some tobacco find an elder find someone in your community mm-hmm. who is familiar with uh, ceremonies around that and it's not only sweat lodges and indigenous uh native community leaders that can do this there's all modes and mediums of this like mm-hmm. i've had people go to yoga classes mm. and, and get the same thing it's just getting aligned again with spirit and bringing you know flushing our bodies finding a place where where the people that we talk to know how to handle this this mm-hmm. type of uh, trauma so and it doesn't even have to be that link but it's going to build up to that place where you will need somebody like that like I did mm-hmm. you know um, and I was just lucky to find the right people that I could trust and you know don't just go to any ceremony like do your research around it and get to know the people that Mm -hmm. run them and you need to trust people that you're putting you know you're putting your whole self into their care yeah um so that's the advice that i would have but uh and you know if you don't know what else to do offer some tobacco and it will come Mm -hmm. there's something out there where it works when i don't know what else to do just it doesn't have to be four cigarettes that you put out. It's like, even if it's a little crumb 
they say, mm-hmm. you know, it's the it's the intention that I put. Yeah. Uh, my tobacco down in the water, in the fire, in the wind, mm-hmm. uh, in the air, uh, just where people are not walking too much. And you just state your intention that I think I need some help here. That's all I need to say. I need help. Mm-hmm. Can you please send me someone or, you know, we're taught not to to prescribe or, you know, make up our own prescriptions because we can't diagnose what we're going through mm-hmm. when we're in the middle of it. So they always say, don't ask for what you think you need. You just ask for help and send send something my way that's going to help me to get mm-hmm. better. And it works that. every time. So that's I what I did. That. So because you do this work, I would say another tip would be for everybody who's listening here, who is struggling with soul pain, who's struggling with, um, you know, their spiritual loss and needing that reconnection, contact Marie at White Lightning. So how can people get in touch with you, Marie? Uh, the best way is uh, we have an, an email, uh, White Lightning for, for me. So it's it's the spelling white lightning all lowercase and then the number four and then mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. at gmail.com. And we do have a website as well, uh, which is white lightning consulting.com. Awesome. I'm and our contact that. information is on there. Amazing. So I am going to share all of these links in the show notes as well. This interview is going to be published on a, on a website um, where all the interviews for all the 12 beautiful people that I've had the honor, um, the privilege, the, um, the joy of being able to interview and learn from. Uh, All of that will be contained there as well. And I'll have Marie's contact information for White Lightning Consulting so that you can get in touch with her, learn from her, heal with her. And Marie, I just have to thank you so much for not only just doing one interview with me, but for (laughs) doing a collective six hours and two days of interviews with me. And just all the brilliance that you have brought, because I know that ceremonial healing has worked for me. I know the power of it and it needs to be the norm. We need to get back to this way of healing. So thank you for being on our show and for, for everything that you do. Thank you, Nikki. And it was, it was fun and it was, uh, you know, it's always a, uh, an honor to be asked to share this and, and our work is is so uh, linked and uh, hopefully that uh, even if it helps one person out there to, yeah. to uh, you know, not be fearful. It's like we were told there's fear and there's love. It's simple. There's two things yeah. in this world and we just have to stop being afraid and just step out and, and, and take the chance and surround, surround ourselves with people who, who want the same goals as us. Um, yeah. And together we can get stronger. So thank thank you, Nikki, for inviting me. And, and I look forward to seeing the, the fruits of this labor. Oh, me too. I'm submitting my dissertation in uh, about a month's time. And so this is very exciting to have you included in that and be part of this process. It's an interview I will remember forever, forever. Okay. And you and I have lots of good work coming our way. Okay, for sure. Okay.